Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 140. This morning we have a correction and an announcement. Firstly, we have something of a debacle about corned gunpowder. I'm so embarrassed. Mike got in touch to correct me. Corned gunpowder. I'd said it burns slower, apparently and unsurprisingly not. It burns faster. I have to say that when I read the previous version it didn't sound quite right, but whatever, the net result is that corned gunpowder is more powerful and more reliable. I grovel with apology. Second, the announcement. There's no easy way to say this, so I'm just going to come straight out with it. I'm going to have a break. It's not you, it's me. I love doing this and I want to keep loving it. It's been close to four years, things are busy, so I thought I'd take a few months off just to recharge the batteries. Now I realise you may all find someone else during the breakup, so I hope you'll come back to me when I return. I'm thinking a few months, certainly till Christmas, I think very probably till March. But I will be back. I couldn't possibly not do the Wars of the Roses or the Civil War, Pitt the Elder and Younger, Gladstone, Disraeli. Just not conceivable. So wait for me, listeners. Anyway, there'll be this episode today and I wanted to do one more on heresy next week and then there's radio silence for a while, though, to keep you interested, there are quite a few guest episodes that look terribly good. So keep checking your downloads. So, talk me through the father and son rivalry thing. 
Henry the Prince, Henry the King, thrusting young Buck, looking to show his dad how much better he is, how much more he knows. Slightly jaded, slightly superior, father saying, talk to the hand, whatever. This is the biggest story that takes us to the end of Henry's life, his struggle to hold on to power and his relationship with his son. Now the collapse of Henry Bolingbroke's health had left a power vacuum. Actually, that's not necessarily a problem. The young Henry III had his William the Marshal to help him through, nay problem. But in this situation, there were some tensions hanging around, some family tensions. Thomas of Lancaster, the second eldest son, was returned from Ireland and at his father's bedside. Prince Henry was there to boot, but he would have to have been something of a saint, would he not, not to be thinking about his potential coronation, the imminent arrival of power when Dad popped his clogs. And the next few years would show that sense of separation and split loyalty so clearly demonstrated in Prince Henry's youth between Richard and his father. Before we launch into that, it's worth just covering the stepmother thing. One suggestion is that Prince Henry did not get on with his stepmum, Joan of Navarre. And it has to be said, this is not a surprising conclusion, because later in life, when he was king, Prince Henry rather brutally had her accused of witchcraft and imprisoned for four years, so that he could confiscate her income. I think we can agree that this is at very least unfriendly. However, there had been absolutely no sign of that before Bolingbroke's death. In fact, there seems to have been something of an informal alliance between prince and stepmother over policies such as the French alliance, which we'll come to at some point. But look, who knows? Families are odd things. They're foreign countries with hidden shoals and currents. And at a distance, with the odd reference and action here and there, it's completely unknowable. Maybe Prince Henry was always sniping at his stepmother and poor Joan overcompensated to try and make him like her. Who knows? But I think we just have to put that one in the unknowable category. In his will, however, which he made in 1409, Henry did make it clear that the throne was entailed on male descendants only. No women in this club, thank you very much, jacket and tie only. The idea being possibly that at least Thomas of Lancaster would be the first to profit if Prince Henry was shooting blanks. And there is other evidence that good Prince Hal was proving a bit difficult, that he had an agenda, that he was pushing the boundaries, impatient to exercise the control he'd been born to take and had been exercising in Wales. By this stage, Prince Henry had a household in the middle of London at Cold Harbour in East Cheap, the manor of the Black Prince which King Henry had given to him. It's at this time that we get the legend of good Prince Hal, the good time boy, constantly out on the tiles, giving it large. In fact, there is wafferthin evidence for the idea that Henry was a wild child, only to be reformed when he assumed the throne. But what there is, let me give you a taste of. First of all, there are references from chroniclers, which are not very explicit and detailed, but reasonably widespread. Here's one example from Thomas of Walsingham. Passing the bounds of modesty, he was a fervent soldier of Venus, as well as Mars. Youth-like, he was fired by her torches. Having said that, we have no evidence of any bastards, so just saying. Then there's a report that he and his brothers spent their time ripping it up in London. The line is in the Chronicle of London, which described an incident simply as an affray in Eastcheap between the townsmen and Prince Thomas and John. 
Now in this one, Henry doesn't even get a mensch. It's entirely possible that he was tucked up in bed with an improving book at the time. Not entirely likely, but entirely possible. And then finally there's the report of what Henry did when he came to the throne from the brute. It's a long piece, but he's talking to a group of three people described as faithful and long-serving men of his household. Three companions. He'd called them in for a special meeting, having just been made king. And the three men went along full of expectation of a great reward, that their boat had come in, their careers were made, and so on. This is what they actually got. Sirs, you are the people I have cherished and maintained in riot and wild governance, and here I give you all commandment and charge you that from this day forward you forsake all misgovernance and live according to the laws of Almighty God and the laws of our land. The long and short was, here's a little payoff, now naff off and never darken my doorsteps again, or I'll set the dogs on you, so help me I will. So look, there's the evidence. On the one hand, none of it is very conclusive, and when you get to know Henry over the next few episodes, well, I have to tell you, whatever you think of him, Love him or loathe him, he's no flibbity-gibbet, no cowboy, no fly-by-night, no lightweight. He's a serious, serious bloke to whom my very bravest reply, had I been there, would have been, yes, sire. Nestled right next to, here, let me get that loo paper for you, sire. On the other hand, this is not the kind of stuff that generally survives from that far back, and the fact that some of it has could be significant. So hang it all. I'm inclined to believe it. There, I've said it. It's an opinion on which you should base absolutely no value whatsoever. It falls four square into the shed category. But that's my opinion, and I'm sticking to it. Anyway, where on earth are we after all that? Henry, family, relationships. Basically, for 18 months, Prince Henry launches and pretty much implements a palace coup. That is probably a bad way to describe it. Historians are keen to present this as a kind of utterly loyal desire to get involved and help out. Which is fine, OK, and I can buy that, but it's close. Close to the line. So close to the line that it's clearly an invasion of the poor old line's personal bubble. So close to warrant a charge of harassment by any right-thinking line lawyers. It's probably best if I tell you what actually happens, and then you can make your mind up for yourself. So... We've talked about Thomas Arundel, Archbishop of Canterbury and the King's close friend as well as political heavyweight. He's Chancellor, and as Chancellor, dominates the King's Council. Well, on the 27th of January, 1410, Parliament was opened not by Thomas Arundel, but by Henry Beaufort, Bishop of Winchester. The Beaufort family are of the royal blood, descendant from John of Gaunt and Catherine Swinford, as I believe I've told you more than a few times. As it happens, it was Thomas Arundel who'd passed the bill excluding the Beauforts from the succession to the throne. So you won't be surprised to learn that the Archbishop and Henry Beaufort don't see eye to eye. We've discussed Arundel, and we know that he's no pushover spiritual type, but Henry Beaufort, well, he's without doubt a prince of the blood first and foremost, and man of the cloth a distant, distant second. Excitingly, they, whoever they are, think that a portrait by Jan van Eyck could well be Henry Beaufort. We're finally getting to that stage where we have masters of the painting art creating paintings that give you some insight into the sitter, which is very exciting. I choose again 
to believe that the picture is of Henry Beaufort. So have a look at the portrait on my website. That's the face of a player, gentle listener, a complex, hard, subtle man and a player. One of the reasons the Archbishop doesn't like him is because Henry Beaufort fathered a bastard by his own niece, which is a good reason for an Archbishop to take a Guinea man. Anyway, why was it Henry Beaufort opening Parliament rather than Thomas Arundel? It would be because Thomas Arundel is no longer Chancellor. Through 1409, good Prince Hal had his supporters, and his supporters felt that good Prince Hal should have more of a say and an influence on the king's government and that bad King Hal was too ill to be effective. Good Prince Hal himself clearly thought he should have a greater say in the king's government. Well, OK, he's the heir after all. But there are suspicions that it went a good deal further than loyal support. There's a suspicion that Beaufort suggested to King Henry that he should abdicate in favour of his lad. Throughout 1408 and 9, Prince Henry's stock was growing. He had fulsome praise from Parliament over the way he'd handled his Welsh job. He was showered with honours, made constable of Dover Castle, warden of the Sankports, captain of Calais. King Henry was ill and looking pretty terminal, so you'd have to be something of a political numpty not to get yourself onto the prince's staff, and so that's what duly happened. And it has to be said that Prince Henry himself did inspire trust and loyalty. There's a famous incident where the prince hit the chief justice in the face as a result of a charge against one of his followers. The men who came to the prince's side in council were influential and powerful. Richard Beecham, the Earl of Warwick, Henry Chichell, the Bishop of St David's, but most of all it was the Beauforts, Henry and his brother Thomas. Throughout 1409 King Henry could have no influence on his council, and without him it tore itself apart. The prince, despite his job in Wales, was a constant presence at the council meetings, and over time he and his supporters began to dominate where Arundel had once ruled. Back in the royal family, meanwhile, Henry's brothers were not at all pleased by this new development. Thomas of Lancaster had already held office in Ireland, John of Lancaster in the north of England. Prince Henry appears to put his brothers in their place, arguing that Thomas, for example, should resign his post in Ireland now that he's back home at his father's bedside and therefore give up any idea of keeping a salary for the job. The future history of the brothers is actually pretty good, but there's tension and high feeling in 1409. King Henry, meanwhile, was a remote figure, struggling with his own illness and spending most of his time in private houses away from matters of state. In November, he went on pilgrimage, and on the 21st of November, Beaufort declared officially for the prince in council. Two weeks later, one of the king's right-hand men, a chap called Tiptoft, the treasurer of England, resigned, feeling his position to be hopeless as the prince and his supporters controlled and dominated proceedings of the council. King Henry rushed back to London to try to cope with the crisis, but could do nothing. Arundel resigned his post as well, and there was nothing the king could do to talk him out of it. The ailing, tired king waited and dithered through December and January, but could not talk his old friend round, and in the end he was forced to admit defeat. The only face-saver was that it was Henry Beaufort's younger brother, Thomas, who was made Chancellor rather than Henry Beaufort himself. Essentially, the weakened king had handed power to his son and his faction. 
and hence back to why Parliament of 1410 was being opened by Henry Beaufort, not Archbishop Arundel. Essentially, we're looking at a palace coup. Down the years, you get this feeling of a kind of irritable impatience on behalf of a young, thrusting prince in the face of the older, ill and decaying but stubborn king. We have a father and son thing, ladies and gentlemen. The son wants to get on with it, feels born to rule and has a vision he wants to start painting and frankly, dad isn't up to it. Dad doesn't want to be pushed aside and anyway thinks the son doesn't know quite as much as he thinks he does. At one stage, as I said, we strongly suspect that Prince Henry tried to get the king to stand aside for the younger generation because, quote, he can no longer apply himself to the honour and profit of the realm. And so it's come to this. Henry has fought rebellion, faced accusations of usurpation, been deprived of the money he needed, been humiliated by Parliament, has faced a terrible illness, and now his son wants shot of him. No wonder he preferred the company of son Thomas to that of son Henry. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. On to this stage burst the French, because in France things were hotting up, and hotting up in two factions. In the blue corner, ladies and gentlemen, we have the Duke of Burgundy, John the Fearless. And in the red corner, Charles, the Duke of Orléans. In the middle, well and truly caught between two mad boxers, was the poor, mad and helpless King Charles, and his much maligned and insulted Queen Isabeau. Let me take you back, just to remind you what's going on here, because this will be crucial. We have Charles VI of France as mad as a box of cheese, an absolute proof that however you might not like an autocratic system of government and might prefer an anarcho-syndicalist cooperative, if you live in an autocracy, you'd better have a competent autocrat. As we will see with Henry VI, when you don't, the whole system falls to pieces because Charles had four uncles and all of them argued over the family silver and felt that they should have it. This chaos developed into a vicious struggle for power between King Charles's brother, the Duke of Orléans, and the king's cousin, the Duke of Burgundy, John the Fearless. During the struggle, the poor old Dauphin, i.e. heir to the throne in France, was passed around from faction to faction like a toy in a game of pass the parcel. Then, in 1407, John the Fearless proved that he was badly named. John the Pile of Pooh, more likely, as he had the Duke of Orléans assassinated, and really didn't bother to conceal the fact that it had the Duke of Orléans assassinated. Remorse was not a major part of John the Pile of Pooh's personal makeup. He persuaded the University College, the Sorbonne, to declare that the Duke of Orléans had been a tyrant, and so John had been jolly well justified in having him butchered. Well done, John. Good lad. Now, I know I've told you all of this before, but now the situation developed. What happened was that the Duke of Orléans' son looked for help. Unfortunately, he's called Charles, just like the King and the Dauphin, which is really irritating if you're trying to write a podcast. There are simply too many Henrys, too many Charleses. 
Anyway, from now on, we're going to go for King Charles as the Mad King, the Dauphin as the young heir to the throne, and Orléans as the young duke. Okay? Okay. So, the young, 14-year-old Duke of Orléans quickly realised he needed a strong ally or he was toast. Enter Bernard VII, Count of Armagnac. Hopefully you'll remember the Armagnac family not just because it's a drink, but because you'll know the Counts of Armagnac were one of the three leading families of the south of France and Aquitaine, pretty much inveterate enemies of the Dukes of Aquitaine, otherwise known as the Kings of England. Now, I know us English like to think that we've given the French a pretty good run for their money over the years, but I have to say that the truth is that after the Angevin Empire went the way of all flesh, the biggest factor that defined English success in this age-old struggle was French disunity rather than English brilliance. Sorry about that. Obviously, I hate to be fair-minded where the French are concerned, and obviously, as a red-blooded Englishman, I dearly love Edward III, the Black Prince, Agincourt, and all that. But hey, really, when the French were united within themselves, the English were usually having a bit of a struggle, and it's when the French fell out with each other that the fun started. And the French have just fallen out with each other, big time. So, now we have Armagnac versus Burgundy. And at this stage, Burgundy also meant the King of France, since he controlled him. And each party was looking for an advantage. And right across the Channel was England, a country full of frankly inferior folk, obviously, but with the potential to swing the balance of power. And so both parties came to court the English. Looking back, both parties would probably wish they hadn't, since they get a good deal more than they bargained for, as often happens when you invite the barbarians in. But hey. The story goes that the French strategy was yet another area where King Henry and Prince fell out, and it is probably true. In King Henry's mind, as he shuffled around in Leicestershire from place to place seeking relief from his illness and pain, Burgundy represented the King of France, and the King of France was to be opposed. But the prince saw the opportunity with Burgundy and hated or loathed it. The prince was in the driving seat just now. And so it was Burgundy who got the love. And so in 1411 there was a little-known invasion into France led by the Earl of Arundel, not to be confused with Archbishop Arundel, who was busy burning people in barrels, of which more another time. And the English... They proved they still had it in them, defeating the Armagnac outside Paris at Saint-Cloud and helping the Burgundians seize Paris. Hurrah! Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, hey, I thought the English crown was destitute, didn't have two beans to rub together, and now here they are, wandering up and down the River Seine with a big army, eating bonbons and beating up the French. Actually, you're probably not thinking that at all, but this is a poorly concealed device to allow me to tell you that to find the money for this, Prince Henry had suspended all those annuities that the king gave to his friends and ladies. The king would have been furious, livid. He hated this kind of thing, and there could be no greater sign of his helplessness that it happened. Meanwhile, the prince's friends were enjoying the thrill of power. Henry Beaufort felt empowered enough to argue the toss with the royal princes even opposing the king's favourite son Thomas in his marriage plans. I doubt the king enjoyed that either, and it's probably at this time that the prince and Beaufort went to the king and told him it was time to step aside and let the younger generation have its day. And so, on the 2nd of November, Parliament arrived for its first day, for that year's event. Beaufort, the prince and their council were in the chair, of course, and no one expected the king to be there. 
he'd be watching his bottom half decay. So imagine the surprise, and indeed consternation, when the king's writ arrived, telling them all to hold off for a day because the king himself would be coming down to run the show the following day. All was rumour and discussion. The following day Julie arrived and Henry was duly at Parliament. But nothing seemed untoward. Parliament went ahead as normal. It was not until the 30th of November that all became clear and Henry made his move. Henry had the Speaker bring all of his council forward. The Speaker, incidentally, was a man called Thomas Chaucer, a representative from Oxfordshire and the son of that chap who tortured small boys with his writing. Anyway, forward all the council came, Prince included, and knelt before the throne. "'You've all been great,' said Henry. "'Thank you so much. Brilliant. Marvellous. You have my full support. Super. Oh, by the way, there isn't a council any more.' Effectively, they'd all been fired, and Henry was back. With one final heave of will and superhuman effort, Henry Bolingbrook had refused to be replaced by the younger generation. Thomas Beaufort was sacked as Chancellor. Those 31 articles from way back from Parliament limiting the King's power were annulled. Around him, Henry's Lancastrian affinity gathered and brought in the support he needed to survive. By December, the king had a new council of his own people, and guess what? Archbishop Arundel was back as chancellor. In February 1412, the changes went on. Burgundy was out, Armagnac was in. The king was still in great pain, unable to walk or ride a horse, but he made it down to Canterbury for discussions with the Armagnac representatives, and a deal was struck. Henry's favourite son, Thomas of Lancaster, now Duke of Clarence, would lead an expedition to the southwest of France. Armagnac, in return, would stop trying to chuck the English out of Gascony, and instead the English could have their old extended realm of Aquitaine back. Standing at the back of the delegation, fuming with rage, no doubt, were Prince Henry and Henry Beaufort. For them, this was a public humiliation. The prince was in a rage. As we'll see, before long, Prince Henry was not a chap to suffer argument. He wrote a letter, stuffed with accusations against the king's advisers and claiming he had been asked to lead the expedition to France before his brother Thomas, but he'd refused because he wasn't offered enough men. The world was full of rumour, mainly that the prince was going to remove his father by force. The rumours were so strong that the prince actually had to issue a public letter denying it. By May and June 1412, the relationship between father and son was at an all-time low seriously. Henry even had to get all his sons to swear to support the expedition to France, worried that Henry would break ranks. So what happens next is very interesting. Just as the king had showed his measure by refusing to give into his constant pain and political adversity, so his son now showed his mettle in maybe a different way. Henry V is sometimes presented as the apex of kingship and sometimes as a cold, brutal megalomaniac. Both of those share a characteristic of cool, calculating head that sought to drive events and people rather than to be driven. Ian Mortimer, in his book The Fears of Henry IV, well worth a read, by the way, paints a great picture. On the 29th of June, 1412, the prince went to the Palace of Westminster. 
he was accompanied by a huge crowd of supporters and followers. He doled himself up in his Sunday best. He arrived at Westminster Hall, told his mates to stay in the lower end of the hall and went up to the raised dais where the old king waited for him. Through they went to a private chamber and with just a few others there, son knelt before father, declared that he'd never for a moment wanted ill of him and that he didn't want to live without his father's love and with this he passed his dagger to the king and said, Therefore, most redoubted Lord and Father, I desire you in the honour of God for the easing of your heart here before your knees to slay me with this dagger. My Lord and Father, my life is not so dear to me that I would live one day that I should be to your displeasure. I forgive you my death. King Henry turned on the waterworks and burst into tears. People blubbed all the time in those days before the stiff upper lip arrived. He fl dramatically he flung his son's dagger across the room and said, My right dear and heartily beloved son, it is true I partly suspected you, and as I now perceive undeservedly on your part. But seeing your humility and faithfulness, I shall neither slay you, nor henceforth any more have you in distrust for any report that shall be made to me, and therefore I raise you upon my honour. And so King and his son were reconciled. I suspect what had happened was that Prince Henry controlled himself, thought about it hard, swallowed his pride, and made a conscious decision to do what he needed to do, however unsavoury, because he knew he wouldn't have long to wait. Meanwhile, favourite son, Thomas, Duke of Clarence, just 14 years old, was sailing to Gascony for glory, and to hook up with the Armagnac and the Duke of Orléans, do some serious damage to the land of the French and the Burgundians. Or so he thought. In fact, he was on a road to nowhere, and the Armagnac had no intention of inviting him inside. While he was at sea, the French came temporarily to their senses, patched up their differences, and decided they ought to be fighting the English rather than themselves. So when poor old Clarence arrived, he was high and he was dry. Now, Thomas was no pushover. Really, Henry and his brothers formed a pretty remarkable array of talent. So, nothing daunted, he declared war on the whole French nation and set off on a chevalsay. Now, I'm prepared to accept that this trail of violence made no strategic difference whatsoever, as historians, po-faced, are very keen to relate, and that the whole affair had done nothing for the king's reputation for a strong grasp of strategy. But... I suspect, nonetheless, a bit of mindless violence made Thomas and the English feel a bit better. Back at home, Prince Henry and Thomas Arundel were still sniping at each other, with Arundel trying to stitch Prince Henry up on a charge of misuse of public funds, and the prince trying to get Arundel on a charge of treason. But the king was focused on other things. His mind had turned back to Jerusalem, where it had been prophesied that he was to die. Like the yearning after youth of fat 50-year-old podcasters, Henry wanted to visit the home of God and the memories of his hale and hearty youth. But it was not to be. It seemed pretty clear that King Henry's health was failing again. Although Parliament had been assembled in January 1413, Henry was too weak to attend and people hung around, guessing what was about to happen. Henry drifted in and out of consciousness, and as he lay there, Prince Henry duly arrived. 
there's a deal of commentary that survives about Henry IV's death. One of these is a famous story that the prince picked up the crown and tried it on for size as the king lay there ill. That the king stirred, saw his son and asked what right he had to the crown since he himself had none. In reply, the warlike son said, My lord, as you have held it by right of your sword, it is my intent to hold and defend it in the same way. The king replied, Well, act as you see best. I leave all things to God and pray that he will have mercy on me. Like many nice stories in history, it probably fits into the bunkum category. In all likelihood, this is French propaganda to discredit the prince as a disrespectful, greedy crown-grabber and to discredit the whole Lancastrian dynastic claim to the throne through King Henry's confession that he had no right to it. Another story has it that the king got quite a lot of grief from the various churchmen gathered around, quizzing him on his feelings as he lay there about King Richard. You know, the kind of thing. My lord, now that you are lying helplessly in agony, ill and on the edge of death, do you regret it all, brutally murdering Richard and stealing his crown? And do you regret murdering a saintly archbishop? Hmm? Henry kept his cool to the end, it seems. He had absolution for Richard. He'd done penance for the archbishop. And as for the usurpation, well, he slightly sardonically remarked that his sons wouldn't let him give that up now. And then, with all the traditional expressions of regret and hopes for God and instructions to pay off all his debts, he croaked. So there we are, come to the end of another king, Henry the Fourth, not the most famous of our kings, or indeed the most glorious. Over the last few weeks, I don't think I've had a reason to change my mind about Henry the Fourth, though maybe to admire him a little bit more for his persistence and determination and resilience. I wonder if he regretted the transition from carefree aristocratic golden boy to ill and careworn king, but then you have to say he wasn't given a lot of choice. And in the end he survived, and he did his duty. Left a fine collection of heirs, a stable realm and crown, despite all the challenges he'd faced. And so we approach one of our most famous kings, Henry V. But before we get to him, I think next time there'll be other things. It'd be quite good to do something on Lollardy and the burning of barrels, for example. And then, of course, as I have said, I have a bit of time off. So... Thanks to all of you for your comments on the website, iTunes and Facebook and all that sort of thing. Thanks to donators this week, to Piram, Janita, Brenda, Matthew, Robert and Kathy. Good luck everyone and have a great week.